I'm Robbie Dale, and this is Brilliantly Easy, Stupidly Difficult, a podcast in celebration of nine others about what we choose to do. Episode 6. There's a thought experiment called the trolley problem that was devised by philosopher Philippa Foote in the late 1960s. You might have heard of it. It asks you to imagine that in front of you is a train track, and on it, a train moving at pace. If you look back along the track, however, you see something a bit unnerving. Five people, tied to the track, all of whom will be instantly killed when the train reaches them. The experiment comes when you realise that next to you is a lever, and on that lever instructions that let you know if you pull it, the train will be diverted onto a different track, saving the five people, but crucially, killing one individual, who is tied in the new line of the train. What do you do? Take an active choice to save five, but kill one? Or do nothing, and let the events unfold around you? decisions, decisions. But just when you've made one, consider how that might change in view of slightly different circumstances. What if, as in one variant of the problem, you didn't pull a switch to save the five and kill one, but had to push a very fat man in front of the train to stop it? Same maths, different action. Changed your mind? What if that man was in fact the villain? who tied five innocent people to the tracks in the first place, what would you do now? And what if we change the context? Judith Jarvis Thompson, an American moral philosopher, asks us to consider this. A brilliant transplant surgeon has five patients, each in need of a different organ, each of whom will die without that organ. Unfortunately, there are no organs available to perform any of these five transplant operations. A healthy young traveler, just passing through the city the doctor works in, comes in for a routine checkup. In the course of doing the checkup, the doctor discovers that his organs are compatible with all five of his dying patients. Suppose further that if the young man were to disappear, no one would suspect the doctor. Do you support the morality of the doctor to kill that tourist and provide his healthy organs to those five dying people and save their lives. Well, do you? There are, of course, no easy choices here. I have a degree in philosophy, hence the various examples dotted through these episodes, and I'm left floundering. On which note, let's bring in our ninth and final guest at our virtual Nine Others dinner. So I'm Tom Cledwin, a creative strategist working, I guess, in advertising and marketing. So in 2012, I donated my kidney to a stranger. You know, it was very, very strange that that sort of the consideration I made to donate a kidney for myself was a very simple, instinctive one. Yeah. Uh, but most of the work that went into processing the pros and cons of doing so was in order to, for me to work out how best to position the donation to those around me so that I could convince them and make sure they weren't worried and make sure that they were on board as well so they selfishly could be as supportive as they could be to me. Um, But really, yeah, you know, in in terms of the convincing I had to do to myself, it was an incredibly straightforward, instinctive um, 
almost obvious, completely and utterly obvious um, set of... Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I remember really, really, really vividly, actually, the exact moment when I decided to do it. Uh, at least in my gut, I was reading an article from a lady called Kay Mason, who was the first lady in the UK to donate a kidney to a stranger. In fact, before her, it was illegal, or at least there was no law in place to mean someone could donate to someone they didn't know. So she uh, lobbied the government to make sure that she, as someone who didn't have necessarily a friend or family member who was suffering from kidney failure, um, she went out her way and, and, and lobbied for that law to be introduced. And I was not just inspired by her and her tenacity, but it was just an incredible sort of lightning bolt moment where I, again, immediately, instinctively, almost obsessively knew that this was absolutely something I was going to do. Um, I'd really fallen in love with the idea. Yeah, so Tom decided to give his kidney to a stranger. Recently, someone in a post office refused to let me borrow a pen. I had to buy one. We all have choices. Where the conversation gets quite interesting often is, you know, why it is any different. Because it's not my dad, it's someone else's dad, or it's not my daughter, it's someone else's daughter. Uh, I I just never, ever saw any difference there. Um, You know, the net difference is the same. The only difference is that I don't necessarily see the end result, and that doesn't make any difference to the end result. It just makes a difference to how I perceive it. So, um, yeah, you know, again, it it just... uh, Nothing for a very long period of time, a couple of months before I told anyone I was doing it, that all of that was just about actually an initial gut feeling, an initial investigation to try and intellectualize a little bit, get the stats and facts behind what it means to be a donor, what it means to be a recipient, um, try and formulate the argument in order to have the conversations with my, my friends and family. But, but interestingly, or, or not, I mean, tragically really, a, a couple of months into my assessment, which takes about a year, Okay. You have, for your sort of physical health? Yeah, you have, yeah. You have uh, months of physical assessment and you have uh, three or four sessions with a psychologist to yeah. determine your psychological health and, and whether your motives are yeah. right, or whatever that might mean. Um, but at that stage, I, I lost a best friend of mine, um, a girl called Zoe, completely out of the blue. And suddenly this very sort of Again, this this gut feeling um, mindset I had became an altogether sort of different one. I mean, the one thing, the one sort of piece of the puzzle up until this point that had been completely abstract to me was actually death. Mm. Uh, and ultimately, you donate a kidney to prevent someone from um, from passing away. And and through Zoe passing away, in the first time for the first time in my life, I understood what death felt like and what grief as a process felt like and you know at that stage obviously I was going to do everything I could to try and prevent that particular horrid horrid feeling um, being felt by someone else or the family and friends of someone else um, if I had the chance to and strangely enough I was two three months into a process where I did have the chance to do something yeah I, I mean there are 8,000 people on the waiting list waiting for a kidney. Um, that doesn't just mean they're close to death. It means already that they're not really living because they're spending two or three 
days a week in hospital and again they don't go there on their own they go with their loved one their daughter their child so there's a there's a ripple effect of that inconvenience um, and everyone else in the country that isn't those 8,000 people have a, have a one kidney too many common reason not to is what about if anyone around you or if, if a future child of yours suffers some kidney failure and, and you can't donate to them and it's a strange one and when it comes to you know this concept of regret obviously this is perhaps the scenario where it becomes most relevant yeah. uh, and yet I, I can't really put myself in a position where I know whether I would regret that or not Again, in, in the sort of three different areas of decision-making, the, the gut, the head, and the heart. I mean, the head and the stats that the head found out were, just showed me that really statistically the chances of me having a child that needs a kidney are so slim that I wasn't comfortable having considered this, sitting here and waiting for that, whilst someone somewhere of those 8,000 people didn't have the kidney, you know, my spare kidney, I guess. Um, obviously, if I'm ever in that situation, that statistical sort of statistically very improbable situation where I have a child that needs a kidney and I can't donate, I will regret it then. But in a way that, you know, I won't... Regret is probably the word, but at the same time, will I feel as though uh, I shouldn't have done it? No, not yeah. really. It's not surprising to hear that people questioned Tom's decision. And it isn't surprising they did so under the cloak of concern for him. But of course it says rather more about themselves than it does about Tom. People's opinions always do. It's entirely understandable that you or they or I would be concerned about making such a large decision for ourselves. But Tom's thought this through. He's made a considered choice. And while in talking to Tom it was clear he didn't face huge pressure to abandon his plan, that's not always the case. Those who are scared to follow their heart tell others who try that they're being naive. Those who choose to play things safe tell those who choose to roll the dice they're irresponsible. And that's really sad because it adds friction to those who are exploring who they want to be, of course. But maybe more importantly, it highlights those whose choices have been allowed to wither on the vine. Again, there's a, such a mismatch between a lot of the people around me that I spoke to about them feeling it being this massive thing, this irreversible year-long commitment. And to me, all that felt actually tiny in comparison to the amount of value it could add. I guess it sort of answers the question of why do something like this, donate a kidney as opposed to run a charity marathon yeah. or bike ride. And again, the answer there is, is actually really logical and simple. It's the most effective way to do something as, as big and as good as possible, even in monetary terms, let alone the whole life-death sure. thing. Um, someone on dialysis is costing the NHS about 50k a year. Now, a brand new kidney from a living donor should get about 20 years of kidney function in a recipient's body. And that is what, a million quid? Yeah. A million quid, say, for the NHS just from, from one kidney. Yeah, <laughs> so I don't know, you know, whichever, whichever way I, I looked at it, it, it really felt like the most effective way to do the best. And part of that is because actually it's a very simple act. How we all should live life is a really tricky question because we all are so different. But I think in trying to 
in accepting our differences and therefore trying to understand the sort of underlying, one of the underlying truths that applies to all of us, I, I tend to think, especially the older I get, that we are at our best when we're at our simplest. Mm. Um, and in which case, you know, how can we live life in the simplest way with as much of the chaff stripped back and, you know, just simply avoiding pain and gaining pleasure for ourselves and others. Like, you know, the, the sort of anything over and above that is just a complication that's, you know, that I think is, tends to take us off track. Absurdism is, is, as Camus explains, we inherently, we naturally, we obsessively look for meaning in the universe and yet the universe inherently has no meaning. So that, it, our search for meaning is absurd because there is no inherent meaning in the universe. So the, the outcome of that, the, the solutions are sort of threefold according to Camus. The first of which is that you jump into religion. You, you sort of create a meaning and you live by it and you follow it and you can create a framework. The second is suicide because <laughs> there's just no point. And the third of which is simply really just to create your own meaning and, and to live life how you feel without any of, you know, any incessant need to understand the universe or indeed any fictional framework from which to live by, but just this sort of simple day by day, what's right, what feels right, what feels wrong, what is the most effective way of doing the best things you can. Um, and again, like, it just strikes me as the most obvious way of living. Tom says we're at our best when we're at our simplest, which is something our third guest, Brant Maybury, noted too. I think they're right. Our simplest self is the clearest, sharpest image of who we really are. And by extension, we're left lacking when we're out of focus, faded into the background, surrounded by noise. When we're lost, maybe, under layers of someone else. Someone who's not quite us. Tom did something very simple. He gave up his kidney so somebody else could live. It was to him quite brilliantly easy, but to me and to many of his friends and family and maybe to you, it was a decision so alien that making any headway on it would have been beyond hard, truly stupidly difficult. And why that is gets to the very core of why I've made this podcast and what it takes to be who we want to be what it takes to use our time in ways we won't regret, in ways that make us proud. I spoke to nine guests over the past few episodes, nine others at a virtual dinner designed to unpick this question and show the value of sharing ideas and the value of others' experiences in defining our own. From Molly I learned the only route to success comes through speaking in your own voice. From Simon I learned you shouldn't be scared to ask difficult questions because the answers are all the fuel you need. From Branson Melanie, I learned the importance of perseverance and from Nayasha that people are allies, not competition. From Elizabeth, that sometimes you just need to ask. From the SAS soldier, I learned the importance of risk mitigation. From Amy, the value of giving a fuck and not giving a fuck. And from Tom, well, I learned a lot. And when I put it all together, I learned why it's so difficult to get to the end of our lives acting on the impulses that would let us be content. It's because, and here's your anticlimax, 
is because there's no one answer. Right at the top of episode two, Hunter S. Thompson told us, what is truth to one may be disaster to another. And that's the size of it. The stupidly difficult path through life, I've learned and learned and learned again, is walking in someone else's shoes. The brilliantly easy, your own. We're nearly at the end, but I'm not quite finished. For 15 years, from 2001 to 2016, to be specific, I wanted to be Jason Hazley. Prior to 2001, I quite liked Jason Hazley, but in 2001, that basic connection was upgraded because I discovered something called the Framley Examiner, a spoof local newspaper website that was about the funniest thing I'd ever read. And my chuckles turned to gasps of astonishment when I realized that Jason, one of the writers of the website, was the same Jason who was in one of my very favorite bands, Ben and Jason. And the gasp continued throughout the 2000s, and sadly, Ben and Jason parted ways, and Jason went on to have a sterling comedy writing career working closely with Charlie Brooker and others on a trajectory that led to him writing the insanely popular Lady Bird books for grown-ups with his writing partner, Joel Morris. So when I stated earlier that what I wanted to be when I was younger was a darling of the indie music scene or a critically acclaimed comedian, it turns out I actually wanted to be Jason Hazley until I wanted to be me. And so in examining who I am, the life I really want to live and how I want to spend my time and maybe to round this off with a more personal lesson, I thought I'd try and meet him. So we wrote the first six or seven spreads of The Hipster, the ones that appear in the book as they are, um, and sent them in. And they said, this is great, but can you do... Can you do a series of them? Don't just do one book, do eight. And we went, ooh, okay. So then we, between us, we worked out what the eight were. But we, it was a punt. So this was the point I'm getting back to after a long fucking tangent. It was a punt. And we said, look, this, this might go well, it might not go well. It's not a huge amount of work for us because each book is only about 1,200 words long. It's not a lot. So just give us a tiny advance and we'll do it as a, just as a punt, just to see what happens. So we asked for two grand advance for it. Right. Um, so did we earn our money back? Yeah, because uh, we've now sold five million books, That's not bad. which is extraordinary. Are they outside the UK? Yeah, yeah we've had, they've been translated into about 11 different languages. The Chinese ones are a thing to behold. Because they've got footnotes. <laughs> now I can't read. I can't read Mandarin, but they are having to explain in the footnotes to each page what the fuck it is we're on about. I was interested in talking to Jason for all the reasons stated, of course, but also as someone who has garnered the dual satisfaction of critical acclaim and big, fat public success, the holy grail for creative practitioners of all kinds. And having observed his from the outside, I wondered, as we all do. What was going on inside? You sort of think if you have had a record out or if you have had uh, a book out or something, you think there is an expectation that because you're looking at the front end of that, which is usually the cover of the album, then you listen to the album or you get open the book and you read the book, that there's this is an accomplishment of some sort. And, and it is an accomplishment of some sort. But the, but the millions of fucking practicalities that lie behind it are the bits that actually occupy your time not the inspiration, because the inspiration can either be there or it can not be there. 
in my case, one of the reasons that I wasn't unhappy that Ben and I folded is that I ran out of things to say. When we talked, Jason explained to me his journey from 12-year-old wannabe architect who didn't have the math skills to pursue that dream to wannabe composer who deferred a place at Cambridge studying music and worked in a music shop where he lost the taste for academia and found himself in a band before wondering if he should really button up and thus found a job in a newspaper doing advertising sales before realising that the depression that had likely pushed him from taking up a place at Cambridge was likely to crush him in sales. So he moved. He moved to London to transcribing sheet music from popular 90s albums where he met Ben of Ben and Jason and he made music that I fell in love with. And all the while he kept an eye on writing funny stuff and that grew and when, as he mentioned, he ran out of things to say as a lyricist, he found them to say through comedy. And in the context of my life since 2016, since choosing to find myself to work out how to, well, be me, well, it just lays it out very clearly. It cements it. That was Jason's path from architect through newspaper ads to world domination. Well, my world at least. And my path, of course, looks very different. And so ergo, success looks different. Contentment looks different. The end result is different. It was true for nine guests, true for my heroes. And it's been true for me. Do you feel imposter syndrome? Yeah, I have. I until a few years ago, every fucking minute of the day, every minute of the day. Um, one of the reasons that Joel and I do so much pastiche. So the Ladybird books, the Framley Examiner, which was a pastiche local newspaper, Kunk, which is pastiche TV documentary. A lot of the stuff we do is because we're good at pastiche, but unfortunately being good at pastiche confers to you the idea that you're, you're pretend, we, we, because you literally are, as David Quantic said, right, when he writes, he likes to get up in the morning and go, Who, which writer do I want to be today? And that allows him to channel his very best work. For us, it's, we're doing a silly version of a, of a sensible thing, which means we are pretending to be the makers of the sensible thing, but we're doing it while, while going while giggling behind our hands, and that just it just makes you feel like an imposter constantly, you know. And I really did. It took me a long while. I don't think I was. I don't think I know. I don't think I knew who I was until I was well into my thirties. It took me a long, long time to work out who I was. I tried out various versions of me, all of which were quite unsuccessful. In particular, the version that bought a load of Carhartt clothes and had a fin sculpted into his hair. That was a very bad version of me. That was in the mid-90s. Um, and my hairdresser was pregnant then, so she decided to do something unusual, not put the fin right at the top of the hair, but over to one side at about 2 o'clock. Wow. So I basically looked like half half a Keith from the prodigy, you know? I mean, yeah. it, was, it was not a good look. But that all this stuff was just trying to find me, going, where, where am I? Where am I? I'm, I'm here somewhere. And I think I found me eventually. But imposter syndrome has been a fucking constant companion. It's been there with me the whole time, which I, which I, it, it's, it's dreadful. It's sort of, it, but that's partly my own fault for not addressing it earlier. But then I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to identify, you know. It's a bit like if you if you do suffer from depression, like I have done very badly, much, much less so now. But because you don't know what it is, you can't identify and you can't deal with it. Actually, I've got a better example than that. When I was at primary school, the first girl to come in who had a pair of glasses, 
was a girl called Sarah Watson. And she arrived in the class and she had glasses. And we all went, oh, you got glasses and all got four eyes and all that other childish crap. Um, and then at some point I said to her, can I try your glasses on then? In order just to be, look, this is what I look like with glasses. So people can go, ha, 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 keep with glasses. I tried them on and I went, I can read the board. And she went, yeah, that's why I've got glasses. And I said, but what? What? But I thought things that were further away were blurred, like they are in photographs. And she went, no, 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 that means you need glasses. And I, of course I didn't know until then. I was, I was 11, but I wouldn't have known unless someone had slipped. I'd put a pair of glasses on me and gone, oh, Christ, there's a problem. I didn't know there was a problem because I've seen the world one way. In the same way that I've seen the world one way, which is who the fuck is this guy whose body I'm walking around in, imposter syndrome, and then eventually working out, well, it's you. That's who you are, you know. You are one person finding your way through life. And there are a million paths you could follow. Too many by far to trial them all before your time runs out. And while some might be lucky and find themselves early, for many of us, we need some help. Our success requires the aid of others. Their experiences and practice at life in all its threads and tributaries gives us an insight without having to do the hard miles. It helps steer us from the bad and whittle down the good. Others. That's the key to making the stupidly difficult a little easier. Thank you to Tom, Jason, and to every guest we've had on the series. And thank you too for listening. If you've made it this far, I am in no doubt you can achieve anything you want. Good luck. Brilliantly Easy, Stupidly Difficult has been a podcast for the Nine Others Network. You can find the credits and anything else you need to know at nineothers.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. I am proud of it. I have a, I have a real, you know, sense of... You know what I think, Bobby? This, this may sound really morbid. I sort of know now that in that moment of passing away, and I'm not a religious person, I'm not a... I'm, I'm someone who thinks probably too much, but I, I don't have a faith to kind of hang my hopes on or... Um, and, and, you know, when I do think about that sort of ultimate final moment in, in life... I think that I'll think of this, and I think I'll think, job done. <laughs>